Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been reading through the Psalms of Ascents together this summer. Those are the, the songs that are collected between uh, Psalm 120 and 134. And they're usually thought of as songs that God's people uh, sang on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem or uh, once they got to Jerusalem for one of the yearly festivals. They are songs for the road. These are songs uh, for the journey of the faithful together. And that's how we've been reading them, as uh, songs for our journey in the life of faith together. And it is easy, I think, to see how this morning's psalm uh, could be used on a journey together, how it could be used and was used in a pilgrimage. Um, So we just sang a song taken from Psalm 133. And I'm going to read it for us now. You can follow along uh, in the order of worship where it's printed, or you can just listen as I read from Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this word uh, that we have read and heard together that we're going to talk about for a few minutes. And we ask that as we do that, you would meet us. Um, that you'd meet all of us in whatever state we find ourselves in this morning with strong faith or weak faith or not even sure if we have faith at all. For those of us who are ready to hear and those of us who aren't, for those of us who feel distracted by all kinds of other things going on in our lives, meet all of us and use this word to build in us the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Use this word to change us by Jesus' grace. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, for reasons uh, that I don't think are too hard uh, to get at, my Instagram feed is pretty much uh, clogged with people uh, doing stuff on skateboards and bikes and scooters and rollerblades and even uh, unicycles every once in a while, despite what some might consider my somewhat advanced age. The, uh, the all-seeing algorithm in the sky knows that I love this stuff, and uh, it's not wrong, and I know that I'm not alone in loving those things. And once in a while, uh, in these clips, I do see someone do something spectacularly great or spectacularly amazing, but usually what I see in these clips of people doing things on these wheeled uh, things is, is uh, somebody failing in some disastrous way while the person who's, who's uh, filming it with their camera starts wheezing in laughter, trying to hold the, the phone straight, or they drop it real quick to assist in the disaster that's happened. You get the idea. Maybe you've seen some of them. And there's one uh, particular genre of these feats that always confuses me. People will line up three or four picnic tables end-to-end. And then they will haul their bike up onto one end of those picnic tables and they will ride down this kind of makeshift runway and ride off the other end. Um, I have no idea 
why people do that. Honestly, no idea at all. But as they say, I'm here for it. And uh, invariably, when the front wheel of their bike uh, goes off the end of that last picnic table, it immediately falls under their weight, and these people are blasted, you know, projectile style, off the front of their bike. And uh, the person who's holding the camera starts wheezing and laughing and trying to hold the camera straight. Uh, if I've seen one of these things, I've seen a hundred of them. And so here's what I've learned strictly by observation, okay? Strict, strictly by looking at it. If you want this to work, you have to pull up on the front wheel of the bike really hard before you get off the end of the last picnic table. That's what you have to do. I've learned that by, by watching it happen over and over again. That's the only way that you're going to make this half-baked scheme work. You've got to pull up on that wheel. So that is just a, a free tip from me to you in case you ever want to try it. Um, and you can report back to me how it works, or better yet, you can have a friend take a video of it. And church, that's exactly the way this psalm works. It's precisely how this psalm works. We learn from this song by looking at it. It teaches us by showing us things. It's not a how-to. It's not a tutorial. It just shows us what things look like when they are right. And as we see that rightness and as we savor it, it fills up our imaginations and our appetites about how God is and what he's made us for and how we're supposed to live in light of all of that. And another word for this, another word for looking at stuff and seeing when it's right and seeing when it's wrong, another word for that is wisdom. That's what wisdom is. It seeks out the grain of the world as God has made it, and it observes that grain, and it watches it, and it looks at it, and it learns from it. And then wisdom lives in a way that works with that grain rather than trying to cut against it. And the wisdom this song wants us to seek is the blessing and the life that comes from the unity that God has made for people like us. It's that simple. And this psalm says just about everything that it intends to say, almost everything it intends to say in the very first line, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That is a family image. Literally, what that line says is how good and pleasant it is when kinfolk live together. It's a family image. And that's a particularly beautiful image, I think, to consider when you think that maybe this was used as a song that was sung as families made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, these families would join up with their extended families and other families and they would make their way from their hometowns and they would join up with innumerable other families as they got into Jerusalem. And you know, you know if you've ever done anything like that, even if you've done it with just two or three other families and you've traveled together, you know that that doesn't often happen in harmony. <laughs> you know it doesn't always work out like that. You know, most of us don't do pilgrimage. We don't have a real correspondence to this in our own lives, but we do, we do tend to get together for our own festivals, right? Christmas at the grandparents, <laughs> Thanksgiving at the sister's house, and we all know how those things can be, those pilgrimages. Sometimes they are fraught with tensions and bickering and 
squabbles and misunderstandings and old wounds that come out again. We know how that is. Luke's Gospel records one of those uh, family gatherings, one of those family pilgrimages that didn't go really great for a mom and dad. At the end of Luke 2, we're told that Mary and Joseph, every year, every year they made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. And one year when they were heading home after the festival, they just figured that Jesus, who was 12 years old at the time, Jesus had to be with one of the extended family. Jesus was surely walking with one of the acquaintances from the hometown on the way back, but he wasn't. And Mary and Joseph had to wait, make their way back to Jerusalem, another pilgrimage. They had to search for him three days until they found their son. Now, we're not told how they were with each other, what they said to each other, but you don't have to have too lively of an imagination to wonder what they must have said to one another and thought about one another as they went looking for their son. Ten, seventy-two hours for sure. And that's the point, really. The point is to remember not that, but what it's like when it's good. The point is to see what it could be like if it were good. That's what Psalm 133 is all about. Because when those gatherings go well, when those pilgrimages go well, when people live together in unity, it can feel a little bit like heaven on earth. Where there's peace at those gatherings, where there is reconciliation among people, where there is understanding, where there is repair, where there is a sweet celebration, we get a taste of what we have been made for. How good, how pleasant. And we don't ever want it to end. And deep down, we know why. And this is wisdom, church. It's wisdom. It's so obvious that sometimes it feels like it doesn't need to be said, but of course it does need to be said. It helps to say it. It helps to sing it, especially when you consider that in the way that God has set up and formed his people, both back when this psalm was written and right now here in this church, kinfolk wasn't nearly as narrow as we usually think of it. Sure, it was, it was family and it was extended family, but in the way that God sets things up, it means neighbors too and strangers who have wandered into the fold and debtors and those who rub us the wrong way and the people who say stuff we don't like and maybe even those who have hurt us. What would it be like? What would it be like if people across those vast and very real differences find some kind of concord with one another? You know, what would it be like? What would it be like? What could they do together without the strife that so often runs between them? What could they do together if they were not broken apart and polarized into suspicious factions? What would it look like to be a people of reconciliation for whom that is the first impulse? What would those people be like, a people of open-handed and glad forgiveness and grace that has no limit on it, no stop placed on it? A people who seek to understand first and to love always. What would that be like? It would look like the kingdom of God had come on earth as it is in heaven. 
how good, how pleasant. <laughs> and in its own way, this, this psalm reaches uh, to try to say what it would be like with these two beautiful similes. First, when we live together in unity, it's like precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And I always feel, I'll admit, a little funny reading that, given that my name is Aaron and I have a beard. But what can you do? It's a beautiful image. You know, for the ancients, uh, using perfumed oil on the skin and the hair was one of the palpable pleasures of a good life. It was costly, for one thing, and it was extravagant. And you and I, you know, we have a shelf after shelf after shelf of cosmetic products and beauty aids and first aid stuff, but the ancients didn't. This is what they had. They had this oil. And along with bringing visceral pleasure and visceral happiness, it was also used to heal wounds. But in Israel, oil was also used to anoint kings and priests and sometimes prophets too. It marked out certain people to stand between God and the people and mediate his blessing and his care and his mercy and his love and his truth to them. And sure, these were flawed people, but even in their fallibility, they also represented one of the ways that God intended to care for his people in a very immediate physical way. So the addition of Aaron, the first high priest of God's people, adds an image of care to the ones of pleasure and happiness and healing. And the oil, you know, it's just going everywhere, isn't it? It's falling down over the clothes, down onto the floor. It just can't be contained. It fills this room with its intoxicating smell. It gets all over everything. And in a way that only poetry can capture, we're left with this idea, this idea that living together in unity is a joy. And it's pleasure. And it's healing. And it's care. And it is all-encompassing. That's what it's like. That's what unity brings. That's what it does. Imagine, church, imagine a people like that. How good. How pleasant. And then the singer says that when God's people live together in unity, it's like the, the dew of Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. Mount Hermon was the northernmost, the highest of the mountains in ancient Israel. It was the only one that ever gets a snow cap. It was proverbially dewy. And that was a big deal in a land that for most of the year was arid and dry and hard. And St. Augustine pointed out that this was, on the face of it, a very, very strange image because Mount Hermon is really, really far away from Mount Zion where the temple was. There is no way, really, strictly speaking, that the dew of Hermon could ever fall on Mount Zion. It just wasn't possible. And so once again, I get to sound like your eighth grade English teacher. This is why poetry is awesome. Poetry does what nothing else can because surprise, the refreshment of Hermon miraculously makes its way to rest on Zion. And it brings with it life and bloom 
and fruitfulness. Living together in Unity Church, it makes things that seem impossible entirely possible. And it brings life and it brings verdancy to places that are arid and hard. That's what unity brings. That's what it does. Imagine a people like that, church. Imagine a people like that. How, how good. <laughs> how pleasant. A people who live like that would be a people whose very presence would be good for the life of the world. It would be different, wouldn't it? And church, that is precisely who we are made to be. That is precisely who we are called to be. That is what we have been given the gifts to be. The psalm says that for one thing. This is what the last sign of the psalm says. There the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. And in the logic of this psalm, there means Zion, where the temple was, where heaven and earth met, where God met with his people to give them his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and to give them new life and peace. That's, that's the place from which God's people spread back out into the world on their pilgrimages back home, united with the grace, with the mercy, with the new life, with the peace of God able to give it out for the life of the world. God's people, church, they went back home with the blessing, life forevermore. And as I've said, I think almost every week, when God's people first sang this song, they sang it loud. Believe me, they sang it in faith. And they sang it that way because they believed it, even if they didn't know how it was going to work out. <laughs> and thank God they sang it when they didn't know the answers to so many questions. How is God going to make unity across their own vast differences? How could he do it? How could he make unity across their hurts, the hurts that they have inflicted on one another? How could he do it? How, how could he create unity around their misunderstandings and their wounds? How could he do it? How, how could God make the joy of a close family somehow spread out to make for joy in all of the families of the world. How, how could he possibly do that? How could God make unity possible across the lines that so easily carve us up and draw us apart and make us suspicious of one another? How could he do it across the lines of politics and economics and race and all of the other lines of dividing that surge in and out of our culture just depending on the day and whoever's talking the loudest. How could he do it? How could God make good on the promise of the blessing, life forevermore? Well, they didn't know, but they sang it anyway. We know the answers to those questions, church, and if we can get our heads around it, if we could possibly believe it, the answer was for God to come and be a pilgrim with us, in front of us, in love for us. Because there was a pilgrim who sang this song before it ever made it to our lips. There was a pilgrim who told stories of grace and stories of reconciliation and stories of forgiveness that went across wounds and across deep hurts, right? Stories about fathers forgiving sons who had wasted every good thing they had ever been given. 
Stories about workers who didn't deserve a day's pay, but they got one anyway. And this pilgrim, he made stories like that happen in real life and flesh and blood all around him by his grace. Lepers sang thanks to him and women who had been forgiven deeply learned to love greatly. And a brash man, a brash man who who made dumb promises that he could never keep was made the rock anyway. And this pilgrim prayed for us, church. He prayed for us. Father, the glory that you have given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, <laughs> so that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved me and that you have loved them. And right after that pilgrim prayed that prayer, he made peace by the blood of his cross. <laughs> He broke down the dividing wall of hostility that stands up between us, all of those dividing lines that carve us up. He broke them down. And he made one new people. And this pilgrim in his resurrection made all who follow him in faith, whoever those may be, alive together with him. And in his ascension, this pilgrim made a way for those who follow him in faith, whoever they are, whoever they are to go safely home where a great multitude that no one's ever going to be able to count. From every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people, every language where they will stand together and they will sing forever before a throne. Church Jesus is how the blessing of life forevermore comes. Jesus is the one who makes unity possible even and especially across vast differences and the wounds that we have inflicted on one another. His grace, his forgiveness, his mercy working deep in us by the power of the Spirit, that is what makes it possible to seek unity with others and then to live in that unity. Unity. We don't, we don't have to gut it out. <laughs> we don't have to kind of chip at this on our own and by ourselves. I mean, honestly, that's why so many attempts at unity and reconciliation, that's why they flag and then they fail, because we think it's up to us, because we think it's up to the tools that we have at hand to do it. But it's not up to us, and we don't do it alone. God is the one. God is the one who commanded the blessing of life forevermore. He's the one who reconciled us to himself across vast wounds. And he's the one who makes peace. Church, listen to this. He's the one who makes peace where you think it could never happen. That's the truth. That is the grain of the world that he has made us to live in for our good and for the life of the world. How good. (laughs) How pleasant. When the family lives together in unity, let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would make this beautiful song, our celebration song, when unity happens, and that you would make it be our prayer for it when it doesn't. Help us by your spirit to live as you have made us to live in your Son, to seek each other's forgiveness, to offer it to one another with open hands and no limits and no reservations, 
to refuse to live in suspicion, to refuse to be divided, to seek unity not because it sounds like a really good idea, but because that is what you have made us for and that is what you have secured for us in your Son. Father, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.